Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you for the meal. Thank you for giving us the things to enjoy, all things to enjoy. And we're grateful, Lord, for everything that we have that you've provided for us, food and drink, our clothing, and with these we shall be content. Thank you for enabling us to enjoy the things that you have provided. And we pray, Lord, now that you will be present as we seek to understand your word and to understand it according to your desire, according to your Holy Spirit, that your spirit of grace might be a spirit of grace and supplication to us, that we might call upon you in truth and in righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. In this final hour, our topic is that the reprobates actually contend with God. The reprobates actually contend with God. They lash out at those who are the messengers of God, but their real animosity is with God. And this is an irony because all the while they say they are Christians. All the while they say they believe in Christ. All the while they say God is with them. They believe in God and they follow God and they are saved. But actually it's the very opposite. Their contention is really with God, but they make it with us. That's why whenever they ask questions, they say, you said. Why do you say? Ish thinks. Do you believe? What do you believe? Why do you believe? Are you two saying? What's your opinion on? They always preface their questions in those ways, and that's how you know trouble is on the horizon. That after they preface their question that way, then they ask that kind of irritable, caustic question, in public even, many times in public. But their contention, though they present it that way, why do you say? Their contention is with God. 1 Samuel 8, 7. 1 Samuel 8, 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. They have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king. 1 Samuel 17, 1 Samuel 17, 36. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. Why was David incensed at Goliath? Because he was taunting the armies of the living God. Not just anybody's armies, but the armies of the living God. That's why David was outraged and wanted to fight and defeat Goliath. The contention of Goliath was actually against God himself. Not just Saul, not just the army, not just David. Matthew 10. Matthew 10, verses 40 to 42. 
Matthew 10:40. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. The contention is not only with Christ, but it is with God the Father, according to verse 40. They don't have God the Father on their side. God the Father is actually their enemy. Matthew 12, 30. Matthew 12, 30. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. He who is not with me is against me. If we're not gathering with Christ, we are scattering. Luke 10, 16. Luke 10, 16. The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. If we are preaching the word of Christ, they reject Christ, not merely us. And not only are they rejecting Christ, they are rejecting God the Father who sent Christ. John 13, John 13 and verse 20. John 13, 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. John chapter 20, John 20, 19 to 23. How serious is this? 20, verse 19. When therefore it was evening, on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus therefore said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. That means that when we truthfully preach for repentance for forgiveness of sins and faith in Jesus Christ, if we are declaring to the people that they're not repentant, they're not believing, then what has happened? They're not forgiven. Or if we say the opposite, then they are forgiven. He's saying that right there. If you, re, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. So when we clearly identify a false believer, and we say, look at the rotten fruit coming from him, then that's retaining the sins. That means we're not forgiving his sins. And if we're not forgiving, God the Father has already determined not to forgive him. 
We're just saying it. We're just declaring it, but it's already been determined by God. That's why he's saying it. Have been forgiven, have been retained. Have been forgiven by whom? God. Have been retained by whom? God. We are merely the messengers of that which has been forgiven or that which has been retained. Point number two under this heading. Though claiming to be friends of God, they actually are his enemies because they take God's name in vain. If they take God's name in vain, they are the enemies of God. We know that that's from the third commandment of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Psalm 139, 19 to 22. Psalm 139, 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Those who take the name of God in vain are wicked. They are enemies of God. They hate God. And we must also hate them. We must also loathe them with the utmost hatred because they are also our enemies. If they take God's name in vain, they are enemies of God. If they are enemies of God, they are also our enemies. There's no other way to look at it. It's plain and evident. Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15, verse 8. Proverbs 15, verse 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. And that's contrasted with the prayer of the upright, which is God's delight. If they are offering a sacrifice to the Lord, it doesn't automatically mean it is a valid sacrifice. If they're offering a prayer to the Lord, it does not automatically mean it is a valid, authentic, genuine prayer. It depends on whether they are wicked or righteous. Then we can know. Out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, 1 Samuel 24, 13. So then you will know them by their fruits, John, or Matthew 7, 16. So that's how we know and whether they are righteous and, or, or wicked. Proverbs 21, 27, 21, 27. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? Proverbs 28, Proverbs 28, verse 9, 28, 9. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Nobody can pray to God while at the same time rejecting what the Word of God says. 
They cannot pray, Lord, I want to commit fornication. And when I attempt it, may the woman receive me. May she be willing to do it. You can't pray that way because it's a sin. And if you pray that way, it's an abomination. And that's the same thing with all of the heresies or the theological false doctrines that people have. When they have these false doctrines that are clearly contradictory to Holy Scripture, they cannot pray to God because God's not going to hear their prayer. Their prayer is an abomination. They take God's name in vain in prayer while at the same time refusing to obey God. Matthew 7, Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What are they doing? Are they calling him by a good name? A good title? Yes, Lord. They're doing that. They're even saying that they prophesied in the name of Christ. They cast out demons in the name of Christ. They perform miracles in the name of Christ. But Christ will say to them, I never knew you. It doesn't matter how confidently they say they believe in Christ. If their deeds are rotten fruit, then there's a corrupt root in them. And Christ will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Yes, these people are lawless. Remember, to them, love is lawlessness. Grace is licentiousness. That's what they really believe. Because they deviate without shame from Scripture. Luke 6, 46. Luke 6, 46 to 49. And why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts upon them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation upon the rock. And when a flood arose, the river burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house upon the ground without any foundation and the river burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. If we don't live according to what we say with our lips, we are liars, hypocrites. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. This is a man, Simon the Magician. Simon the Magician. He was a magician or sorcerer. Simon, in Acts 8, we begin at verse 14. It describes him in verses 9 to 13 as being one who had a reputation in the city with his magic. But then it says in verse 13, even Simon himself believed 
And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. This is Simon the magician. Now, let's read about him further in terms of using the name of the Lord. Already, he's claiming to believe, he's been baptized, and he's following Philip, right? And he's amazed at the miracles taking place. 14, 8, 14 to 24. And when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying... Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. This Simon, it says in verse 18, he's offering the apostles money for this ability, the gift of the Holy Spirit, to be endowed upon him. He wants money for the Holy Spirit. He's offering money for the power of the Spirit. It's just this one thing, just this one, one sin that came to the surface. But was this a serious sin? Was he just simply ignorant? Was this a, an accident? Was this because of his upbringing? Did he have bad parents? What happened? Did he just have a bad day? What's going on? Is it the bad time of the month for him? Is it, does he have allergies and a bad headache? What was the excuse? That's what everybody says, right? To excuse sin? But in this case, Simon Peter, Simon Peter immediately knew what was going on. Immediately he knew, verse 20. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Isn't Simon the magician? taking God's name in vain, using the name of the Holy Spirit. He was baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, right? All of this, he's saying he believes in Jesus. And yet, this one sin came to the surface, and it was enough for Peter to know he's no good, that Simon the magician is no good, no good whatsoever, just the one sin. He says in 21, Simon Peter to Simon the magician, Verse 21, you have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you, which means it might not be possible. It might not be possible for you to be forgiven unless you repent. And then he describes what he knows based on the fruit 
of the heart of Simon the magician. He says, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. He's a slave of sin, he's saying. He who commits sin is the slave of sin, John 8, 34. Either we are slaves of sin or slaves of righteousness, Romans 6, 15 to 23. It's either one or the other. And here, he is a slave of iniquity, in the bondage of iniquity. And then, he asks for the apostles to pray for him. Because he's terrified at the judgment of God, but not terrified enough to repent and pray himself to God. This is a faker, a false brother. And we have many like this. Many false brothers. They claim to be friends of God. They say things like, the Lord told me. The Lord is leading me elsewhere. I prayed about it to God. I know the Lord. In my years, that I, as far as I can remember, only one man ever admitted to me that he was in the wrong, but just did not want to repent. Only one admitted that he knew he was in the wrong, he knew he loved his sins, his pleasures, and he did not want to repent. Only one. Has anybody ever done that? Nobody for him, but only one to me. And I'm 50 years older than he is, so I've had more experiences. Now, then he, even though he admitted that, he did blame God, though. He blamed God for not giving him the desire and power to repent. Though he admitted he didn't want to repent, he didn't put the blame on himself, he put the blame on God and said God didn't give him the desire and the power to repent, so leave me alone, I'm going to go my own way. They all misrepresent God in one way or another. They take God's name in vain. Point number three. Point three. Attempting to be, appear uncontentious and cordial, they wrongly use 2 Timothy 2, 22 to 26, and the Paul and Barnabas conflict against us. They say, um, well, let me ask, are there any examples of the Lord Christ or the holy prophets and apostles with this attitude. Let's just agree to disagree. Did the apostles have that mentality anywhere? Did the prophets? Did Christ himself? No. You cannot find that throughout the Bible. And no, Romans 14 is not one of them. We, we could explain that too. Romans 14 is used to justify all kinds of licentiousness, all kinds of lawlessness, but Romans 14 does not permit the kinds of sins that they are wanting to commit. Romans 14 has to do with a few specific areas of growth between a weak brother and a strong brother, and the weak, strong brother helping the weak brother to understand and grow in those areas. But otherwise, it's not a blanket endorsement and justification for 
letting the weak brother continue in sin. Even in Romans 14, he's called weak in faith. And since when is it okay to be fat and happy with a weak faith? Zero. Zero. Even if they use Romans 14 out of context. Okay. 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2. It says 22 to 26. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. What we pursue in verse 22 is with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Well, what should we refuse? Foolish and ignorant speculations. Well, where do the foolish and ignorant speculations arise? Where do they originate? Do they originate in the Bible? No. They originate in the minds of men who deviate from the Bible. So those men who are preoccupied with what one book says, what one famous preacher says, and if this sermon, that sermon, outside of the Bible, they are obsessed and preoccupied with that, that is foolish and ignorant speculation. Not what's in the Scripture. And therefore, the man of God, the pastor, he ought to avoid the bickering and the fighting and the quarreling about, well, scholar A said, no, 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 scholar B said, no, 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 scholar C said, and going on and on like that. But if we're talking about what the Bible truly means and defending the Bible, that's not being quarrelsome. But our detractors, our enemies say, we're quarrelsome. No, we're not. We're defending God and his word, and the gospel of God. That's what we're doing in the face of opposition, and that's not being quarrelsome. Didn't the apostle say, didn't he say this in 2 Timothy 4, 2? Preach the word, 4, verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Well, that's not being quarrelsome, according to his own definition, in the same letter. In later, in 2 Timothy, I mean later meaning after chapter 2, two or chapter 3, verse 16, he says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. If we are reproving people, we're not being quarrelsome. That's not the biblical definition of being quarrelsome. And in chapter 2, chapter 2, 14 to 18, 2 Timothy 2, 14, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. 
Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. If we were to pursue all of the vain arguments and speculations of Hymenaeus and Philetus, then we would be quarrelsome, we would be wrangling about words, which is useless and leading to the ruin of the hearers. But if we are saying that is false, that is heresy, that is wrong, that's error, it's not truth. If we say that, that doesn't mean we're being quarrelsome, we are defending the faith. In the same letter, in the same letter, Titus chapter 1, Titus chapter 1, verse 9. This is what the pastor should do, the elder, the overseer. 1-9, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this cause or reason, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. What are the, the practical obligations of the pastor in Titus 1.9? Holding fast the faithful word, in accordance with the teaching, meaning apostolic teaching, which the apostles learned from Christ, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So we exhort in sound doctrine. What is sound, wholesome, healthy for the soul? And at the same time, we have to mention refutations of those who oppose the sound doctrine. This is contrastive teaching. You not only posit or present what is true, but you have to say what's false in contrast to it. You have to refute those who contradict. But then these critics, these enemies of ours say, you're always talking about false teachers. You're always talking about judgment. You're always scoffing at the wicked. What do you mean we're always doing it? The Bible tells us to do it right here. And it says, because there are many rebellious men and empty talkers and deceivers. Many are out there. And verse 11, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families. So how do we silence them? By refutations, by argumentation, by reasoning from the scriptures, presenting evidence, refuting them verse by verse, argument by argument, point by point. Refute them so that they are silenced. And 
Meantime, they are upsetting whole families. We want harmony in families. But they don't. They want to upset the families. And for the sake of sordid gain, they're in it for the money. They all deny it. No, no, we're not in it for the money. We have a genuine interest. No, but they are in it for the money. They are. They are liars. They are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So how do you take care of a pathological liar? How do you take care of a wild beast of a man who's got no self-control? He's not domesticated and tamed. He's a wild beast of a man. How do you take care or what do you do to a lazy glutton? How are you going to get them to repent? Verse 13, this testimony is true for this reason. Reprove them severely. Reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith. And what is a way to severely reprove them? Mock them. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and other prophets, they mocked the unbelievers. It's all over the place. Jesus mocked unbelievers. Yes, Matthew 23, 29 to 36. He mocked the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's not the only occasion. Jesus did so. Paul the Apostle did so. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is even mocking, ridiculing the Corinthians with his sarcasm chapter after chapter in 2 Corinthians. He is mocking the Corinthians because when one is mocked, he might humble himself because his heart is jolted or pierced to realize he's behaving like he is absurd. He's insane. It's completely ridiculous. And some people need to be shaken up that way. And this is God's way of doing it. Whether it's what we call them or how we describe them. We are doing it to reprove them severely. And our goal is that they may be sound in the faith. They pay attention to myths. Jewish myths, Gentilic myths. They pay, they pay attention to the commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Not us, they are. They don't drive people to the Bible to compare everything they read and hear by the Bible. They're not doing that because they are defiled and unbelieving. Nothing is pure to them. Their mind and their conscience are defiled. And back to our point. They profess to know God, but they're taking God's name in vain. We know it's vain, how? Because their deeds, by their deeds they deny Him. They are detestable before God and should be to us. They are disobedient to God and we should identify it as disobedience. And they are worthless to God for any good deed and for us. It should be that way. They are detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. That's an explanation of 2 Timothy how they wrongly use it and accuse us of being quarrelsome. We are not quarrelsome. They are quarrelsome and taking this biblical word and passage out of context. Another famous incident or conflict 
is between Paul and Barnabas. They say, well, Paul and Barnabas were believers, and they didn't accuse each other of unbelief and being condemned and hypocrisy and going to hell. They didn't do that. They got along. They just went their separate ways, and they were still believers, and they, all, they still went to heaven. So you can have a difference of opinion. You can be in disagreement and still go your own way and still all go to heaven, like Paul and Barnabas. Is that what actually happened? Let's read about it. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 13. 13, 13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. And who is this John? It is the same as chapter 12, verse 12 of the book of Acts. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. 12, 12, and 13, 13, John, who was also called Mark. This is the same one who wrote the book of Mark, who was a close companion of the apostle Peter. At this point, he is with Paul and others, Paul and Barnabas. Okay, then let's turn to chapter 15, the book of Acts, chapter 15, and verse 36, 36 to 41. Let's read this very carefully, and let's see. In this conflict between Paul and Barnabas, was Paul wrong or was Barnabas wrong? Was Paul in sin, or was Barnabas in sin, or were both of them in sin? Ask that question. Who was in sin for this conflict to occur, or were both of them in sin? 1536. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. And Barnabas was desirous of taking John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. That's making reference to 1313. That John, also called Mark, deserted them and did not go with them to the work of the ministry. 39. And there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts. He wrote Luke and Acts. According to Luke, in verse 38... What does Luke think? Look carefully at verse 38. What does Luke think? Notice by the words he's using. Luke thinks that Mark is in the wrong, John Mark, because he calls it desertion. He says, who had deserted them? Is it ever right to desert? Whether a soldier deserts his, his band on the field? and defects to the enemy, or retreats and, and uh, runs away and hides 
in a cave because he doesn't want to go to the battlefield? Is that desertion good? When a, a wife deserts the husband, is that right? No. Desertion is not a good word. But Luke says, John Mark deserted them. And says, and also for a very important task. Not gone, had not gone with them to the work. This is the gospel work, ministry of the word, preaching the gospel from city to city with the Apostle Paul. In chapter 13, that's a serious sin. He didn't want to do that. Okay, then there is a sharp disagreement. Now notice this. They use the moderns, they use the word disagreement. You can disagree, and, you, and it doesn't have to be a matter of right and wrong. It doesn't have to be a matter of true and false doctrine. That's what they say. You can part ways in disagreement and both be right. But does it present itself as both are right? And in this disagreement, isn't it more serious than just, well, you just look at it differently, I look at it differently, we disagree, so let's just separate and call ourselves brothers. And I won't say a single negative word about you anymore. Is that the kind of thing that's happening? Look at verse 40 then. What did the church think? What did the Lord think? What did Luke think? Verse 40, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. Paul was committed by the brethren. Did the church side with Paul or Barnabas? With Paul. And to the grace of the Lord, according to Luke, so, is the Lord's grace on Paul or on Barnabas in this? On Paul, to the grace of the Lord. And then was he successful on his journey? Verse 41, and he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, that's, that's Paul, strengthening the churches. So, being committed to the grace of the Lord he was successful in strengthening the faith of the churches. So whose blessing is here? On whom is this blessing of God? On Paul, right? Not Barnabas. Then Barnabas, who is said by his name to be a son of encouragement, he was an encourager. Why can't you be an encourager? Here they say things like, uh, Paul and Barnabas had disagreements and were still brothers. Paul and Barnabas were still cordial with each other. Paul never condemned Barnabas. Barnabas was an encourager. That's what they say. They say words like that. But is that an accurate description of what we just read? Or how about Galatians 2? We read this earlier, Galatians 2, 11 to 14. Galatians 2, 11 to 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas, him, Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, 
I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? In this case, how many of these men are in the right and how many are wrong? Are all of them wrong, including Paul, in this account? Or is Paul the only one right and everybody else is wrong? Paul's the only one right, everybody else is wrong. Paul is the one who confronts Cephas. He confronts the men from James, the rest of the Jews, and Barnabas. And Barnabas. Barnabas was susceptible to hypocrisy and condemnation. Cephas was the same. The rest of the Jews were the same. But Paul was not in this. Paul was right and everybody else was wrong on this occasion. Correct? So when they say, you think you're right and everybody else is wrong? Well, just let's look at the evidence, sir. Let's look at the evidence. And then you tell me if you have an honest um, a part of your perverse heart. If you have a bit of honesty, just tell me what the honest truth is about this verse I'm asking you. I'm asking you, interpret this verse and tell me honestly what it says. If you've got a bit of honesty in you. And they won't do it. Because they don't have a bit of honesty. They're just looking to fling and sling mud our way. So, Paul was right. Barnabas and Mark were wrong. So don't say, well, Paul and Barnabas got along and they were both right. They just saw it differently, had a disagreement, and went their own ways. No. Paul was right. Barnabas was wrong. And the text of Scripture clearly indicates it. 2 Timothy 4.11 says, Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. And this letter, 2 Timothy, is likely the very last letter that Paul wrote before he was executed by the Romans under Nero. And by this point in the ministry and life of Paul, Mark apparently had repented. And that's why he says, bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. When he was unrepentant, when he was a deserter, he was not useful, and I had the right attitude toward him. But now that he is repentant, I receive him back and bring him because he's useful to me for service. That's the way we should be. When they don't repent, we do what's right and call them out on their unrepentance. But when they do repent, we receive them with open arms. In this way, we have seen that they are enemies of God. Though they don't want to admit it, that's who they are. They're not ultimately our enemies. They take it out on us, but really they hate God. And don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by their smiles. Don't be deceived by their lingo. Don't be deceived by their churches, by the numbers of their churches, the wonderful flatteries that they pronounce, don't be deceived by anything that they do. 
Look at the content of what they say, compare it to Scripture. Look at the way they live and compare it to Scripture. Then you will know who is genuine and who is fake. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.